the floor, man. Floor on the floor. Yo, what if it's a uh, best animal? <laughs> best use best of animals. <laughs> Just best animal. Just best you know. animal. What is the best animal? <laughs> uh, Best use of an animal in a TV show? <laughs> okay, all right. They'll throw that out there. Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Boar on the floor. <laughs> Man, that is so <laughs> fucked up. Jesus. Um, okay. Let's see. So, I have a question for you. Do you remember Taster's Choice commercials? I remember. I think I remember a creepy ass dude mm-hmm. leaning into his coffee mm. cup and like sniffing mm-hmm. like all of the the coffee vapor wafting off yes, of it yes. and then smiling like, in a satisfied way kind so of. Yeah, did you, yeah, yeah do you remember is that, like, is that what you're referring like to late 80s early 90s taster's choice was a brand that i th- yeah. think might have been um i think the parent company might have been like nestle i think uh Taster's Choice. It's so dubious. Taster's Choice. A weird. It's so, yeah. It's a really disgusting <laughs> name when you think back on it, like thirty years later. Not an expert's choice. Not a a chef's choice. No, no, a, no, no, no. Brewer. Just a person coffee, who can taste. Yeah, literally. No. <laughs> like just a, a person with a tongue. Taster's Choice. <laughs> this one didn't kill me. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with that one. So yeah, did you re- I don't know if you remember there a there are yeah. a sequence of commercials and so it's basically a love story, a very domestic kitschy love story. Yeah, and it's like these two this man and this woman who keep meeting at various places like on vacation or they are overseas mm-hmm. in Paris and they keep running into one another. And uh, they really, really, really love Taster's Choice coffee. And that's just how they, that's just their jam. They love Taster's Choice. Every meeting that they have somehow involves Taster's Choice. Like I went and I looked up one of the commercials and the guy thinks he's laying down like a strong rap. A strong, he is all up in this woman's DMs. And he is like, girl, what's going on? Let's go up to your room. She's like, yeah, you can come up maybe tomorrow. For some taster's choice, and that's it. Oh, she just says he's just gonna get the coffee and nothing else. She and that's slides that in between like the filthiest DMs you've ever seen. Oh yes, <laughs> oh like, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. It's I've a been great, showered in It's days. a great run, and I just, think it's just wait yep, till you get mm-hmm. that taster's. Just choice. get that taster's choice. It's awesome because at the end mm-hmm. of the the run, uh, I think the two uh, main characters in this commercial series get married. Right, um, and so like that's the end it's of like the show. Serialization yeah, in commercials. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that's so interesting because it's like I think it's considered to be one of the first times that there is serialization in commercials. Wow. Guess who produced that oh, series? J.J. <laughs> Abrams. No, 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 no. Just time, like guess honestly. what. Yeah. It was before his time. What ad agency produced that series? Oh, no idea, man. Which one? McCann Erickson. The rival of like Sterling Cooper right. in Mad Men. Right. Yes. <laughs> the mm-hmm. villains of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. I could not believe <laughs> that. And they were over that. here I thought experimenting that was... with the art form. <laughs> yep. So crazy, man. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. 
Uh, so the thing I, I just thought of was like, um, I feel like they took that same weird dude sniffing his coffee in a perverted fashion and they just totally recast him for Godiva chocolate and they just put a white oh, chef's hat yeah. on him and had him stare mm-hmm. at a whisk dripping like liquid molten chocolate with the creepiest, yep. most intense expression ever. And he looks yep. so out of place. He does not look mm-hmm. like a chef at all. No, he just looks like a creep. And I feel like that's that's just what they did, you know, to yep. continue the story. <laughs> Yeah, they these uh they they remind me a lot of um the Gavalia coffee um commercials. I don't know if you remember those. These are more those are uh more recent. Um, oh yeah, that's like it's like a, a, the fancy Walmart mm-hmm, brand coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's just got like good. yeah, it, it's just got like you know this. I assume it's like a Swedish person who's just like you know selling you this coffee. This like really pale Swedish man with blonde hair <laughs> who is kind of creepy as well. I think. People and agencies need to consider who the face of the advertising of the of the commercial is. The spokesperson needs to be someone who is warm and inviting, not a right. coffee sniffer or some creepy Swedish uh, person who's going to try to sell you coffee. Not a not a blankly Aryan person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> who looks like they were airbrushed by God? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I just well, thought I would bring that up because yeah. Thank you for bringing that. That to was my the attention. highlight of my week. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to do this? Yeah, dude. All right, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. We are so happy to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams, both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Phil Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host, Mr. Alex Sinesi. Dude, how you been, man? I've been all right, man. I've been all right. Yeah. Feeling good. Good. Thanks, dude. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good yeah. to talk to you. How about you? Doing okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always good to Hell see yeah. you. It's good to talk about some oh, Lost. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. What a nice, pleasant way to start this episode. Yeah. I thought I would Absolutely. just kind of, you know, you know, smooth yeah. jazz my way into this, you know, soft shoe my Hell way yeah, into this. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, let, let me ask you, since, you know, we're starting off so congenial, what, what did you think of this episode we just watched? Homecoming. Homecoming. Okay. Whew. So this is interesting because I felt like, and I, I have to tie it in with just Outlaws. first impressions. Just first impressions. Yeah. yeah, it's an episode that I think could have done without the flashback. And this is interesting because it really started to make me question the use of flashbacks. Right. Using that in the story structure, I started to wonder what was the point. In some cases, when they're well written, they provide a very interesting counterbalance, like the Outlaws or Walkabout. Great examples. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this one just, it does not quite work for me. The story up until the point where Charlie, you know, breaks up with his girlfriend, it's just filler. It doesn't really feel like it's going anywhere. I almost wish to see like what happened after Charlie gets dumped by Lucy, because to me, that's more interesting. And so, yeah, this is one of those episodes where I feel like the main island crisis is much more exciting. Yeah, yeah the, the flashback is almost unnecessary. So you would say it's like uneven, mm-hmm. but kind of like doesn't stand out as bad. It has some elements dragging it down. Yeah, I would say so. And I kind of felt like it was the inverse of Outlaws is the inverse. It yeah. is. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, it's a great pairing yep. again, yep. weirdly, where we can talk about these two episodes that work in completely different yep. ways. Right? So strange. So what if I told you in that case 
that Damon Lindelof feels that Homecoming is the worst episode of Lost ever. Wow. It is his least favorite episode. He is on record as saying he feels it is a failure on every level that an episode of Lost can operate at. Whoa. Right? Yeah. Whoa. Taken aback, listeners. Yeah, Phil is I, taken wow. aback right now. You, you are not mm-mm, expecting that. Mm-mm. I think it's super revealing, actually, that he thinks this is the worst episode of the show ever. Because I think most people who like Lost would be like, oh, yeah, that episode's okay. Like, the Charlie flashback sucks. It doesn't really matter, so it doesn't drag the episode down mm-hmm. too much. I put it, like, middle of the pack. Yep. Right? Yeah. And he's like, fuck this episode. I, I wish I just had, like, a do-over or could just, like, erase everything about it. Because of, like, the episode itself or because of the impact that it has for the remainder of the season? Or does he even get into that at all? He doesn't get into it too much. I mean, the stuff that specifically comes out is him sort of talking about how he had regrets for how Charlie was handled as a character. Mm. I think because Dominic Monaghan proved to be such a talented actor, but he was sort of stuck in this position where his character had Mm -hmm. nowhere to go. This flashback is regressing. Yeah. From the previous point we had seen him, and yet it's not developing him at all. At all. Yep. I would agree. It's funny. It's actually the first time I think a flashback has occurred later than the previous one. We had talked about how the flashbacks run reverse chronologically, but I think this flashback is later than the moth. I think this is after he talks Mm -hmm. to Liam and essentially Mm -hmm. cast out of his life and still hooked on drugs. And so this is like a development there, which immediately also it's like, oh, so... They did too much of his backstory in the last one, so they had to move forward, and what they moved forward to is kind of nothing. But here's the thing. I don't think that's the reason Damon Lindelof hates this episode at all. I think he hates it totally because of the island stuff. Oh, so you think it's because of the way that they handle the Ethan storyline? Yes. Really? Okay, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, hit me with that. So the funny thing is, yeah, for any of us watching Lost, I think we look at it and we're like, oh yeah, it didn't turn out the best but it's sort of what we had all been waiting for we'd all been waiting for them to do more ethan stuff we had been so annoyed at how the abduction of claire storyline had been decompressed and dropped and basically all the characters like went about their merry ways and now suddenly boom you know she's back in it ethan's back in it and it's like okay we're picking up where we left off good you Mm -hmm. know I, i don't think people had that many complaints about it and even though like charlie just kills ethan and it's this sort of frustrating dead end for his character and you feel in retrospect oh man i wish we had had more time with Ethan. I wish they hadn't like burned his character so quickly since he's so compelling. At the time, you're like, well, all of the others are going to be like Ethan. So yeah, one's down, but it's like the threat remains, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't think of it that much as like a waste mm-hmm. of a character, except in retrospect, I feel like. But I think what this reveals, actually, and I'm trying not to get too spoilery here. I'm trying to just talk about like the episode at hand. I think what it reveals is that I think Damon was saddled with the Claire abduction storyline by Abrams. I don't think Mm. he wanted to do it at all. Mm. Or he didn't want to do it in the way that it appears in the series. And that's why he dropped it so fast. That's why he kept having the characters go off and get distracted by Mm -hmm. other things. And when he had to get back to it, he just like hated it. And he took this episode on himself. He's the sole credited writer not letting anyone else sort of deal with it and also taking all the blame for it. Right. 
but I don't think he wanted to write this episode. I think that's why the season feels like it drags its feet on this storyline so much. And when he gets back to it, he's just like, Ugh, I'll just like wrap it up in a totally conventional way. It's a very physical conflict. It all wraps up in this one episode and we can just get away from that. We can just move back to exploring the characters and not dealing with this. Yeah, I don't think he wanted to have this sort of a physical conflict mm. this early on. I don't think he liked this approach to the others. I don't think he liked this approach to the island. I don't think he wanted the physical threats of the island to be like high drama. I think he wanted the island to be more of a subliminal mental... Kind of a backdrop, a backdrop, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And And for the things that attack the characters to be more sort of like their emotions, their insecurities, their psychological distress manifesting mm -hmm. at them. I mean, I won't say too much about it, but like the next time we see the others, they are pretty drastically redesigned yeah. from the way that Ethan appears and the way that he acts in this episode. And in retrospect, he doesn't really make a lot of sense with what the others right. become. Right. And the funny thing is, I really liked the others as a scary culty threat and i feel like if he wanted to bring in a totally different version he could have just had another group on the island yep. separate from them but i mean hey you know like leaving aside the later decisions that get made about it i thought that was super interesting that he was like nope this episode was a total failure and i just wanted to move past it and get back to yeah the, my vision of the show which yeah very different from this stuff that I think he inherited from JJ. Do you think it's also maybe a little bit of Lindelof being hard on himself? Oh, definitely. I mean, the dude is very yeah. hard on himself. Yeah. He's very, very hard on himself. And so I do wonder if he, you know, being the sole writer on this episode, maybe sees it as being like, well, I... I dropped the ball on the storyline. I dropped the ball on this. And yeah. so, like, therefore, it is terrible. Which, again, I, I honestly don't think that it is. I think the island crisis storyline i think it's pretty well done frankly there are parts of it that are a little bit hammy and feel a little bit derivative um and we can get into that a little bit later yeah but other than that like I, it's it's fairly exciting it's intriguing um it's got dynamics then you know shifting alliances that i think are pretty great um and i think that you could name worse more boring episodes of lost frankly right right i'm i'm guessing that's part of his disappointment with it is that that it's like this very busy episode where a lot happens and yet he feels like none of it was executed well. Interesting. Yeah, it, it you're immediately struck by, huh, his vision for the show is very different from, I think, what the viewers were expecting and hoping for because I yeah. think everyone was waiting for this episode. Mm -hmm. Even if it wasn't done super well, we're all like, oh yeah, you know? Mm -hmm. Solid episode that moved the story forward and he did not want any part of it. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably get into the recap. <laughs> <laughs> just real quick. I, I would say, uh, just onto that, I, I would think given what it is that he did with The Leftovers, yeah. I imagine that if he were going to go back and like, if you were going to redo Lost and he had the chance to do it again, it would probably be more interior and it would be more emotionally focused a la The Leftovers. Yeah. Then, uh, you know, sort of the, the exterior, sort of the, the others. And, you know, what is this? Like, you know, what right. are the pull? Like, I think he would have cut all of that stuff out or at least minimized it. And I think he would have pulled to the forefront the emotional struggles that each of the uh, survivors are uh, dealing with. So, yeah, yeah, I would not be surprised. It was something uh, this great TV critic, uh, Emily Vanderwerf, brought up that I thought was just brilliant. But she said that uh, Lindelof 
has a fixation on externalizing psychological issues, Mm -hmm. essentially, making them into corporeal conflicts, but they still are totally like signifiers of internal distress and that's how they act on the characters and that the island really is one of those that the island kind of represents everyone's depression and Mm self-loathing as shame physical space that they're all caught in man you're already getting into some of the questions that i uh (laughs) had written but all right cool all right cool i'm glad we're talking about this i am too because i i saw i know you did i was like oh yeah he's getting at the exact same Uh things that i wanted to but yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah we're talking about episodes 15 and 16 today of the first season of lost so in homecoming that picks up immediately after the events of special um, and that centers on the return of claire and dead-eyed ethan The episode basically starts with Ethan returning and he attacks Charlie and he threatens to begin killing survivors if Claire is not returned to him. Claire, meanwhile, is she's shaken, right? She has some very, very intense, deep trauma. She can't remember anything that's happened since she... Yeah, she's got a sudden case of amnesia. Sudden case of amnesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she cannot remember anything. Yeah, go for it. As a mental health professional, mm-hmm. have you ever heard of a case of someone with short-term amnesia? Short-term amnesia. Well, really, any any kind of amnesia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, there are definitely things like uh, retrograde uh, and interrograde amnesia. Those are both, yeah, diagnosed. Um, those are both conditions. But I think one of the things that happens for people is like when you experience something traumatic, you may not always remember the experience itself. So that's not uncommon. Okay. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. fair enough. Because I, I, I yeah. bet Lindelof is kind of annoyed with it again. I, I mean, not to psychoanalyze all of his choices too much, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it definitely comes across as like a TV sort of cheat code. It does. That yes. writers use where it's like, let's have them immediately forget. I think they actually fill it in pretty well later in the show where it sort of all snaps together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could see at this point him or anyone else rolling their eyes and being like, oh, she has yep. instant convenient amnesia, so she doesn't remember crucial information. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of um, the worst example of that is, did you watch like season one of 24? Oh boy, not all the way through, no. I enjoyed season one because that was the season that really, really stuck to the idea of it all happening in real time. Within a day. Yeah, yeah. And that gimmick was kind of exciting to see them problem solve for that. Mm-hmm. But there is a moment in that season where essentially they wrote themselves into a corner and a character had to witness something traumatic and instantly forget it and wander around with amnesia for like four episodes oh. just to keep the plot from progressing too much. Yeah. As a viewer, you were immediately like, oh, they put this character in a box. This is a total yeah. stalling pattern. Mm-hmm. And it's like the worst example I can think of of using yeah. that particular television writer's game genie or just like a game shark, I guess would be the the more relevant one now. Yeah. I always think of the game genie though, Dude, you know. Game- Plug your Super awesome. Nintendo cartridge into it, and it's like hacking the console yes, immediately. It's amazing. For you. <laughs> it's so great. No, I, I agreed with you, and I did think about that when I was watching it. Like, yes, a, some someone who has experienced something traumatic is not always going to remember all of the details, whether or not you know the extent to which you know that's like I don't remember anything versus I remember some pieces of it is going to vary. But I did think to myself, wow, that's really convenient that she doesn't remember where she's been for like the last two weeks. And it resets her so completely to this primordial state. And so, (laughs) oh, she has nothing to her character now, which just kind of highlights how underwritten she was from the start. Yeah, Uh, I would. mm, 
Mm. That being said, I think Emily DeRaven and Dominic Monaghan honestly are doing very good work with what they've been handed. Of there, course. You know, <sighs> he especially bums me out in this episode because I think he's really working hard mm-hmm. in this episode. And I don't think the material is there for him at all. This flashback has no particular point. It's basically all there to just lead up to this one very on the nose line mm-hmm. that this character of uh, Lucy. Lucy, mm-hmm. thank you. That Lucy gives him where she's like, you'll never take care of anyone, Charlie. And it's just so, like, underlining. But, it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, proceed with the recap. No, Sorry. no, 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 you're good. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, no, we digress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the time we digress. Yeah, so Claire, she's got any. <laughs> if you don't like digressions, uh, you are not listening to this podcast. You are not listening, you yeah. You tuned out a long time ago, so fuck it. Oh, boy. <laughs> so she can't remember anything. She can't remember anything since the crash has happened, yeah. which is a lot of uh, amnesia. Um, so meanwhile, <laughs> you've got the wise council. I have nicknamed them the wise council. So we've got Jack, Saeed, and Locke. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly Kate. I would say that she she might be on the council. Um, and that's about it. It's just the man, the, the man, the masculinity wise council here that they've got going. They decide to is it not inform the uh, the survivors that about Ethan's threat? Is that correct? They say not to do it initially. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they're like, we're not going to. They're tell handling them about this you. like Chernobyl, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like limit the Yo, spread of information. What a great show, Chernobyl, <laughs> what dude. A great show. Oh man, that might have to be one, one. of the best limited series. God. Like, maybe ever. Oof. Honestly. All right, we're digressing God. again. All right, let's get back to. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> They decide that from they... the writer director of superhero movie. I know. I know. <laughs> Craig Mason. How did man, that happen? Pulling it out. How did it happen? Okay. What a champ. Oh, all right. We're doing it again. Right. <laughs> they decide that they're not going to tell the survivors about Ethan's threat. They decide that they're going to try to trap him. And this is just kind of like rendered futile when Ethan easily murders Scott Steve on the beach. <laughs> Uh, I didn't know. I thought it was Steve Scott. Steve Scott, whoever his name is. Yeah, whatever they. I don't even remember who that guy is, but I do think it's funny that they made a big deal about it and then pretended, or no, acknowledged that none of us knew who Scott or Steve was. So the fact that, you know, Ethan was able to immediately and easily kill a survivor, this makes Charlie angry. Um, he's especially worried about Claire. Jack decides that he's going to go ahead and hand out the guns that are inside the case that were found in a, whatever the case may be. In the flashback storyline, we find Charlie as like a, a general grifter. He's just hanging out in bars. He's got, you know, a, a friend who is also a con man. There's a lot of con man. Charlie decides that he is going to seduce this well-off woman who is the daughter of like, I think, a, a wealthy businessman. Um, and eventually Charlie's addiction gets the best of him. He allows his addiction to obliterate a sales pitch that is arranged by this woman's father. Um, so basically after Charlie steals from Lucy, she tells him that the, you know, the relationship's over and she tells Charlie that she is, he is no longer um, welcome and that he's not going to take care of anyone ever in his entire life. He's just not capable yeah. of caring for anyone. While he was unconscious at the hospital, she found out what he had done. And like all of these revelations and all of the actual moments of drama happened off, off screen, screen. Mm-hmm. and while he was unconscious. Yep. And I'm just like, that would have been... That would have been good to see. It would have been a scene with more meat to it dramatically anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying any part of the storyline would have been like 
good or compelling necessarily, but it's still so telling that it's like the actual moment of drama. Yep. Nah, it just happened off screen. Don't worry about it. We yep. already moved past it. Well, yeah, I think you're right. And so like the only point for the flashback is just for Lucy to say that one line. You're never going to take care of anyone. Which brings us to the end of the episode, during which the, the wise council, they decide that they're going to use Claire as bait. Every to time you say wise council, I just think of the fucking council at Zion. <laughs> this not. group of university professors who all raided a Claire's boutique for their costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> they're just all covered in plastic beads and jewelry. And scarves. <laughs> These are the great minds of humanity assembled. By the way, there's a giant cave orgy in the next room over. You gotta immediately be like, mm, yeah, humanity seems pretty fucked. They're not honestly. in good shape. Oh, the Matrix. All right. Mm-hmm. We're doing it again. Uh, yeah, right, so right. they decide to use Claire's bait. Ethan takes the bait because he's not that smart. They go ahead, subdue Ethan with the help of Sawyer, with the help of Kate. I don't even know if it's a lack of intelligence. He's more like, I can physically overpower overpower anyone. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Weirdly. Like, Jack shows up and beats the crap out of him. Oh, mm-hmm. He gets his yeah. revenge. Jack gets his revenge. Yeah, I know. Jack gets to have he his gets, big hero I know, moment I know. where suddenly he's good at fighting and Ethan is like, they're they're capable of subduing him all it of a sudden. I know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then right as they're about to cuff Ethan or whatever, put him in like, you know, ties, yeah. uh, Charlie just shows up with a firearm and he shoots Ethan and that's it. The episode ends with a callback to uh, the peanut butter scene between Charlie and Claire. And I think that's how it ends. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I could see Lindelof being disappointed with, and it annoys me a, a little bit too. In the moment, it doesn't play horrible, but thinking about it, you're just like, so Charlie shoots this guy, thereby like ruining any chance of interrogating him. And they kind of hand wave it away with him being like, oh, do you think we really would have been able to get anything out of him? This dude is like uh, this zealot, this machine. There were, he's, he's a, you know, he's a vault. He's all locked up. So essentially he just gets rewarded. Pretty much. For murdering this guy. Claire comes to him and is like, oh, no, actually, I still like you. And I'm happy that you shot that guy for me. Mm-hmm. And it's all fine. In the end, he basically gets a pat on the head for shooting this guy when you could see everyone just being like disgusted and furious with him and also the show punishing him yep. for taking the wrong lesson here and killing a guy at the exact wrong time. And also just like murdering a guy in general, this guy who is totally unarmed. Yeah. And I shot him and that yes. makes me more of a yes. man, more of someone yes. who's capable of All right, protecting this. All right. We're getting into it. We're getting totally into it. Like we're doing it. We're doing character. it. Okay. Here we go. And that this sucks, is what I was about man. to talk it about. It fucking sucks. Here we go. Masculinity on Lost. What makes a character a man on this show? Because that is what I have been paying attention to, especially since the Michael episode special, which we talked about last time. Right. What do you think makes a man on this show? I mean, it really seems to be providing for one's community and especially vulnerable characters around you, such as, you know, coded as female characters mm-hmm. who you're supposed to be protecting or you have some sort of, I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, sense of ownership over yeah. is the vibe that we're kind of getting here. Yeah, yeah, it's problematic. It's a little, sure. it's a little weird, and I think yeah, it's not. And I'm gonna even take it a little bit further. I'm gonna yeah. say that it's being able to provide for, and then also enact violence upon either the more vulnerable parties mm-hmm. or other men. 
I don't know if you've noticed this way, or even if you feel this mm-hmm. way, but I feel like mm-hmm. Michael, Charlie, and Boone are not as masculine, and I'm like air quotes masculine as Jack, yeah. as Locke, right. Sawyer, right. and Saeed. Speaking of doing a oh, quick yeah. Boone update, Boone falls asleep while he's on watch duty, and thus Scott yes. Steve is murdered. <laughs> it's all Boone's fault, pretty much entirely because of it's him. It's Boone's fault, and it's just another example where it's like, oh yeah, no, the writers have totally sacrificed any chance of sympathy for this character. He is fully <laughs> under that bus. He really now. is. That dude counted to Boone, and then he fell asleep. Because <laughs> you got to think. In this show, think yeah. no, it, is. Right. it, it right. is Jack yeah. feeling like he's got some sort of amount of ownership over Kate, as evidenced in whatever the case may be. Sawyer yeah. with his, you know, kind of weird come-ons. And, I mean, Saeed, as we know, is dangerous. And their ability to enact violence is totally tied into their power rankings, mm-hmm. one exactly. might say. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jack, in this case shoots way back up to like the top of the leaderboard as a hero because he suddenly has increased punching ability. Exactly. He leveled up because I would say like Michael clearly just as, you know, he is a man, he is, you know, a a masculine presenting person. He, I would say is somewhat neutered because of the fact that he has a kid with him. Yeah, no, for sure. He definitely is. He's in a stereotypically and and beyond that even like archetypically i guess female role because he's taking care he's of a just child. taking care of a child yeah yep yeah yeah that, I, I just thought that that was very interesting um it's like who is allowed that and is... i think the thing about who was allowed to carry a gun said a lot about right. this as well because i think jack gets to have a gun sawyer's already had a gun he's been hiding one the entire time Saeed gets to have one. Kate gets to have one, but she gets one because, yeah, because of Sawyer. Because the men tell her that she's allowed to have one. And they Mm -hmm. have to jockey for position to empower her with violence that they have control over. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. You know, it's the case, too, where Charlie, speaking of, like, leveling up through violence, gets his hand on a gun and kills Ethan. And it's not shown as a regression it's not shown as a mistake it's not shown as something that's psychologically damaging for him it's this extremely not powerful not masculine not empowered character suddenly Mm -hmm. jumping ahead so many levels it's like he cheated it's like he had his own game genie again bring he really did he game genied the island by shooting yeah yep you're absolutely right man i mean i think to lindelof's credit he didn't like this. He didn't like this violence power structure. I don't think so. And I think it's clear because you look at Outlaws and it's a total rebuke to that entire concept. It's completely reversing all of these sort of values that we've assigned to the ability to enact violence. So clearly he didn't want to continue down this road. I, I would say so. If you were going to arrange or assemble a wise council on Lost... <laughs> Who is on it? Because clearly it's just, you know, the the three dudes. Right. But, like, if you're going to really put, you know, together a wise council, who is on it? I mean, I think Rose is like such an Number obvious yes. choice as a measured figure 
who has endured trauma, who is processing it in what seems like an actually psychologically healthy way, where she's trying, you know, she's using all of the methods at her disposal to cope with it and to also go on living. So she seems like she would be such a good stabilizing force to all of these dudes who are just hormonally raging around. (laughs) Yes. Pointing their gun dicks at everything in sight and just waiting to spray. You got Sawyer coming in and God, what a fucking red rocket he is in this episode where he's like, don't even think about it, jungle boy, not for one second. You know, he's like, just letting everybody know I could get a hard on too in this situation. So yeah, so yeah, you need Rose to like balance out some of that shit. Agreed. Yes, I second that immediately. Yeah wholeheartedly here's the thing should Locke be on the council is the real question because on the one hand dude seems to have mad secret knowledge he seems to be plugged in in a way that no one else is yes and yet it feels kind of like he would be better off if he was a hermit delivering his philosophy and mysticism from a separated place Mm -hmm. if he was not part of an actual Mm -hmm. power structure i just think that would be safer all around (laughs) you know especially the vibes that we're getting at this point they've set up Locke to be the villain of the show so thoroughly yo he is such a cult leader like he is he is is ascending being the leader of a cult right now right right like i mean come on so you just see the collapse of the leadership council immediately with him at the center. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I am going to found a wise council, it's going to be Rose. I think Saeed has a fair amount of emotional awareness. We know he stabs Sawyer, and then he feels bad about it, and he goes off to do it. He feels bad. He feels, <laughs> he feels bad about it. He feels yeah, bad about absolutely. it. You know, you know, mm-hmm. you know. But he yeah, feels bad yeah. about it. He was like, man, I really messed up that torture session. I could have t- carried that on for days. I should have made sure that I missed that artery. My <laughs> bad. Yep, yep exactly. So, yeah. He feels bad about it, but I think that shows like a certain amount of emotional awareness. that He's a person who doesn't want to be uh, engaged in violence, ideally. That's, right. what, that's what he would prefer. But he seems also like somebody who is good at meeting out violence when necessary which is also kind of a problem that all of these people have where it's like they hold back they hold back and then they're like oh, oh no, no violence, violence time yep. give everyone guns and let's just surround this idiot it it immediately breaks down and it seems so reactionary in a it bad is. way and dude what what the hell is up with this trap for ethan i think that's what dude that's okay, what thank bugs you. me yes. the most yes. about Jack coming in and getting his hero moment is that there was no coordination. There was no laying any sort of a trap for Ethan. It's like literally just, oh, well, whoever runs up and tackles Ethan first has got him. So, yep. mm-hmm. you know, that's what we'll do. We'll just all spread out and, you know, one of us will get to fight with him. And it'll be another one-on-one fight with Ethan, which goes so well, as we've seen thus far, you know? <laughs> Why didn't they all gang up on him? I don't get I it. don't know. I don't understand that. I think it it's pretty clear give... that the only... Yeah. Yes, to give Jack his moment. Yeah. And again, to assert his masculinity through violence, I would say. Yeah, but it just seems so weird that you didn't have Saeed chipping in, you didn't have Locke chipping in, you didn't have them all, like, weakening him in Mm -mm. some way. There was no plan, and there was no real trap. It was literally just like, stick this pregnant girl out here and wait, and hopefully the exact same thing won't happen again. Yes. Come on, y'all. I know. I know. Also, Hurley goes on uh, the Wise Council. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Rose and Hurley are, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, they're necessary. Mm -hmm. Yep. Give me some civilians. Yep. And son. Yeah. Possibly son. 
I like yeah, that. I, like I think that. that's three. I mean, you got to wait till it's revealed that she knows how to speak right, English. That's I true. Guess. She's got a little yeah, bit of deceit yeah. going on. She's there. a late addition. Yeah, oh, right. man. Right. Oh, this is an interesting episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we've gotten the full yeah. shape of it, but I am still fascinated by Lindelof, his reaction, his looking mm-hmm. back on it, because I'm just like, I don't think anyone would have pegged that episode as the worst one of the show. I don't no. think if you asked anyone, which episode do you think Lindelof hates the most? Because obviously all the fans hate Stranger in a Strange Land. My least favorite personally is Fire and Water, which to me is like a much worse episode than this because it's an episode where everyone uh. acts out of character. So it just feels like a bizarre fan fiction episode of Lost. But yeah, I mean, I think I think we can just jump into the second episode then because it's... I think a very instructive or a, a very illuminating comparison mm-hmm. that you get right away seeing how Outlaws lacks some of the things that Homecoming has and yet is way, way more successful in my opinion. And I don't hate Homecoming like Lindelof does. I no. I kind of put it right middle of the pack mm-hmm. as far as episodes go. Outlaws is... Oh, I love this episode, dude. I really Interesting. Love it. Okay. Yeah. So... I liked it more than Homecoming, but I still felt like the Boar Chase storyline, Yeah, I could have done without it. Hmm. I think I could have done without it. It's so obvious what is happening that it, it just doesn't work for me. In comparison to what's happening in the, the flashback, the yeah. flashback is so engaging. It's so interesting. There's such good it's acting incredible. by Holloway. I forget. Uh, I think the character's name is Hibbs. Uh, gosh. Oh, Robert Patrick. Sure. Like he's great. Robert Patrick showing up doing some TV it's guest so work. It's so good, man. man. I was nostalgic for that shit. Give right me away. all of that. Yeah, all of that just works. And then just like the, but the island store. I'm just. Oh yeah. Not to mention uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Perry, the shrimp truck owner. Yeah. That dude. Yeah. He's a that guy. He's a total mm-hmm. character actor. I think of him mostly from uh, Scandal. Oh, I didn't even know he was on that. Okay. Yeah, wow. he was excellent on Scandal. Really, really good. Dude, I did not know you were a Scandal stan. I I really loved the first two seasons Bro. of it, and then I fell off. Oh, man. I did not know this about you. I like this, man. Fun, man. It was very, like, soapy. Dude, you were a Shonda stan? I mean, dude. Bro. Uh, I'm actually really not. It's the only show of hers I've ever engaged okay, with. Okay, okay, okay. But immediately I was like, oh, the writing on this is crisp as hell. Yeah. You got Kerry Washington in the lead, which of I mean, course. who doesn't like She's awesome. looking at her? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she fucking rules. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good show. All right. Good show. Awesome. But he's great on it. And I'd seen him in like dozens of things before that too. He's just one of those guys who shows mm-hmm. up oftentimes for a role like Outlaws. But uh, he actually is one of the founders of the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. Like, <laughs> the most prestigious wow. and biggest method acting theater company wow. in the Midwest. That's awesome. Yeah. It was like him and Gary Sinise. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And uh, William Peterson too, I think. Okay. That, yeah. Everything about the flashback is working for me right from the beginning. The opening is so terrifying. I mean, do we just want to go ahead and recap it really quickly? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah all right. Yeah. So in Outlaws, we are treated to another Sawyer flashback or another Sawyer, yeah, centric episode. This is one that's very kind of heavy on the mental health 
and just like the interiority of each of these characters here, which I think is pretty cool. The episode begins with a really, really upsetting, scary cold open when we've got this distraught woman who is hiding her young son under his bed before the man of the house returns, uh, busts open the front door, shoots her dead, and then commits suicide. It's really, really chilling. It's really, really scary. It upset me. Probably the most disturbing opening to an episode of Lost. Wouldn't you say? I was like, man, I forgot how hard this hits. Yes, this hits really hard. I had to pause it for a moment because it's that upsetting. So we learned that the young boy who uh, witnesses this uh, murder-suicide is none other than Sawyer. Um, In the present timeline, Sawyer is traipsing about the the island in search of a boar who has, like, absconded with his belongings, destroyed his little tent setup uh, multiple times. So at times he is accompanied on the hunt by Kate. Uh, with whom he shares a like sexually charged game of never have I ever. It's 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 they're dating, right? They go out on dates, they go to waterfalls, they you know she camp is out. So cute at him in this episode. That's oh. how I'm gonna put it. Oh, I'm gonna boy. say she's she's just cuting at him mm-hmm. this whole time. Yeah, she wants to get something out of him and she knows that the flirtation will sort of open him up to being, you know, conned and and she can like abscond with his gun. But at the same time, it's like the chemistry is so strong between these two actors. It's like you see them like starting to get into it with the drinking and all that and it's just like jack who yeah exactly man and where is the love triangle tension here? no it's idea. just all it's about all these two Kate, right, right? Now. yeah exactly so during the flashback storyline um we've got a fellow grifter who goes by the name of hibbs who's played by robert patrick he gives sawyer the name of a person an american living in australia whose name is frank duckett uh hibbs is claiming that duckett is the man who conned sawyer's parents um, which led to the murder suicide uh several years ago in search of revenge sawyer decides to go to uh, sydney and he almost murders duckett uh, before losing his nerve god what a what scene a good scene is, it's so good i love it that first scene where he walks up to the shrimp truck Holloway's doing amazing work. He's just stuff, in the. Is, he, is it raining in that scene? I can't remember. Or is that the second no, scene? It's the in second that scene. It's just like a blue filtered kind of like mm-hmm. late in the day. Mm-hmm. But he, his eyes yeah. are just so at once like flat mm-hmm. and cold, but also swimming with emotion. He's just so good at being like locked yep. up and in a scene and not even having to talk. He's just he's uh, so good yeah, in that great fucking performance. And then I think that just that scene is then followed up with, I think, and even a, a just as poignant scene as well, which is Sawyer at a local bar, a local dive bar. And he runs into none other than Christian Shepard, who was on a crazy <laughs> bender after having lost his medical license after the vents of all the best cowboys. Yeah, great moment. I do love that this guy, Christian Shepard, who I believe we still have not heard his ridiculous full name yet. (laughs) They have not put together his first and last name, which I find endlessly amusing. But I do love that this Christian Shepard leads Sawyer on a path directly to murder. You know, by saying this like... Don't like hang on to your mm-hmm. your regrets. Just mm-hmm. deal with them. He's actually saying, "Oh yeah, yep. go shoot this guy," while trying to give some yeah. friendly and kind advice. It's really I love the irony there. In that moment, Christian Shepherd is trying to give advice to a person 
is a Jack stand-in, right? Like he, it's like almost as if he wants to give advice to his son, but he cannot do that. So he's giving it to Sawyer, and it backfires horribly. Sawyer takes this information, he takes this advice from Christian Shepard, returns to the shrimp truck, and then shoots Frank Duckett. And so as Duckett is breathing his last, yeah. uh, Sawyer realizes that he's been played. Duckett was just simply another unfortunate soul who owed Hibbs money. And so in the present timeline, Sawyer gives up his hunt for the boar, and he hands over uh, the firearm that he's been holding on to, and he gives it to Jack. Um, and then the episode ends with a really, really poignant exchange that comes from two different scenes. One is in the uh, flashback, Christian Shepard makes a, a point about the uh, Red Sox never winning the World Series. And then Jack repeats it in the final scene, which uh, alerts Sawyer to the fact that uh, he's actually met Jack's dad. Yeah. And, and that's the end of the episode. And he can disclose this information that Jack's dad always wanted to tell his son that he was the better man and that he had more courage to stand up and that he's even grateful that yep. his son blew up his life and uh, he so respects Jack for making that choice. And Sawyer can say this and literally solve all of Jack's daddy issues and make him truly the best cowboy. And he chooses not to, Yes, which I fucking love. I love that at that point, he's already made some strides. He's made some growth, but he looks at Jack and he's like, oh, I could solve you right now. But you know what, motherfucker, you and I, we got a lot of shit to still sort out. So I'm yes. not even going to start down that road and oh. fucking clams up and walks away. It's what such a, a good moment. ending. How can you not uh, love this I, episode? It's the, it's the ah. middle that I'm just kind of like, I'm not, I'm not sold on it. Just Holloway running through the jungle after a bear. It's some, it's tonally a little bit inconsistent because sometimes it feels comedic like there's some points where you're just kind of like this is really goofy and weird i think it's supposed to i think it's supposed to deconstruct his masculinity fair, i mean fair. he looks pretty ridiculous he does. throughout mm -hmm. the part where he's like picking up this screaming piglet and using it as bait is totally like a parody of using you know the helpless pregnant claire as bait to then kill Ethan. you're right it's him you know coming in and being like yeah i'm gonna assert my masculinity oh by like taking this helpless child <laughs> right. and torturing right. it until i can kill its parent right. and kate is just like what, what the is wrong with is you wrong with mm -hmm. you dude why are you holding this i have to say like pretty adorable little like piglet. little like borland so yeah yeah oh, it's so cute it is it's like a little pokemon i Come know on, man I know. you know oh they should have kept it yeah yeah exactly oh man that Yo, would be great. The island Kate pet. And a little boarlet. I know. Come on. <laughs> her little boar buddy following her around. Uh, yeah. I would rather see a show about Vincent and uh <laughs> and the boar. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a great. great show. Yeah. By the way, where is Vincent? Is he back yet? I don't he know. He showed anyway. up at one point. Okay. During these two episodes. I can't remember now. Anyway. Fuck. All right. What were you gonna say? I thought what this episode elucidated so well in working for me the way that it does, I think this episode shows that actually if a flashback is really strong, if we're really digging into these characters, as I, I mean, I think this is the best flashback we've had on the show so far. Mm, okay. You know, the Locke flashback is so impactful and incredible, but it's like, I think in that episode, the flashback and the the island storyline are both so strong mm -hmm. and they work so in concert of one another. Mm -hmm. The flashback scenes themselves, I wouldn't say they don't stand out 
as like a higher quality whereas mm. in outlaws the flashback is like the whole thing mm-hmm. and it's so well done and it's so well performed and fascinating in its own right and looking at it i was like oh you know if the flashback's really good that's kind of all you need yes. right now on this show the island storyline can kind of just be everyone struggling to figure their shit out in mm-hmm. a very like basic way and without like a major conflict. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this episode shows that so yeah. well. It's like, you don't need a bunch of high drama on the Island. You can have a pretty simple or even kind of silly conflict that makes the characters look a little bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And you're learning so much about them and digging into them so much that it's like, it's actually works really well for me. That's interesting Because as I was watching this episode, it made me question the point of the flashbacks, not because I think that they're useless, but because some of these episodes are so uneven where the flashback is great, but the main story is not, or like the main Mm -hmm. story is, and then the flashback is not, that I almost wished that they had just done episodes where it's just complete flashback or complete island storyline rather than mixing the two together. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I think I think if the island material was paced better because they knew, okay, we have this many episodes, we have this much that we want to do. It, I just think if the, the island storyline was paced better, then it could complement the flashbacks better. It yeah. feels like they okay. don't really know how much story they want to run through on the island. And they also are having a bunch of pushback from the network as far as the genre of the show. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant struggle and a constant push-pull of, like, how sci-fi can we get? How fantasy can we get? And the network is, like, as little as possible, please. Like, (laughs) we want a regular network audience to stick with us, so don't get too nerdy with us, Lindelof, you know? Oh. That's that's the shit that he's dealing with. So I feel like, yeah, if the show was a little more, I guess, confident in the amount of island storyline it had to burn, then it could complement the flashbacks better. Yeah. Because, like, the, the island storyline here, yeah, it's really, it's not really substantial. No. But it's got a lot of good moments. It's got some I mean, good moments. Yeah. The Kate and Sawyer mm-hmm. stuff is great. Locke's story where he talks oh my about God, his dude. sister dying and then coming back as a dog is fucking incredible. Oh, <sighs> dude, it's not just that, but then the smile that he gives at the end of telling that story. So disturbing. It is so, so creepy. Oof. Terry O'Quinn, man, Oscar watch, Emmy watch, whatever, give him these awards, (laughs) people. He, just a moment where he comes in, yeah, exactly, and is collecting that gold watch for his character actor career by just being like, oh yeah, you want to see some acting skill? Let me just like dip into this limitless well of pathos I have and bring up this fucking awesome monologue. Yeah. Oh man, the delivery on that is great. Yeah. He absolutely destroys it. I think it's a very well-written piece too. And so speaking to that, I think... Part of the juice with this episode, too, is that this was written by Drew Goddard, who is a big name. He's a big-time writer-director at this point, big man around campus, Mm -hmm. you know, in the studios, for sure. But this was him on loan from Alias. He was part of uh, JJ's Bad Robot team, Mm -hmm. 
and he was on the writing staff for Alias, and I think Lindelof just borrowed him because they were, you know, so in the weeds writing this show, and he came in, and I think this episode really has the energy of a guest writer coming in who's not so, like, worn down with the everyday grind and problems of a series and coming in and just being like, oh, yeah, cool sandbox, let me, like show off a little mm-hmm. bit and it it definitely has that vibe it has that vibe in the flashback of just how like it's this really compact neo-noir story yep. that is being written it feels like with the flair of someone who yeah isn't like under a ton of pressure to produce story after story for this series you know yeah and he's he's a really interesting guy too i found out he got his start in hollywood because uh he was like an assistant or something on the Fox lot. And he was running a betting pool on survivor because <laughs> he's like a gigantic survivor fan, which is yeah, interesting yeah. that he ends up being a writer on lost, on lost yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, that tracks. but that he was doing that. And uh, Marty Noxon, who is one of the big writers on Buffy interacted with him a bunch there and was like, Oh, this kid's kind of cute. He's pretty sharp. Let me have Joss meet him. And that was, wow. that. and he ended up coming into the writing staff in like season six of Buffy by season seven, he was already like a producer on it. Wow. So yeah, he jumped right up there and he actually, he won a Hugo award for writing on season seven, wow. his first season where he was like fully, you know, getting writing credits. And uh, he wrote this episode called um, Conversations with Dead People, which is a really mm-hmm. impactful episode of Buffy. So yeah. And then he jumped over to Angel and wrote on season five. So anyway, yeah. So after Angel... Goddard got hired on to Bad Robot. He was totally just like a guest writer on this season. He was writing full-time on the last two seasons of Alias. But then after that show ended, in season three of Lost, he jumped over and wrote full-time on the show from that point and Uh became like an executive producer on it after that season. I mean, he left Lost actually after season four because he had a movie career brewing, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. He did his first screenplay with Bad Robot, which was Cloverfield, which is a gigantic hit, yeah, you know? Matt Reeves. 25 <laughs> million budget, made 168 million worldwide. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's he a great crushed movie. it. And I, I really like Cloverfield, dude. I'm a I'm a big kaiju fan in general, and I think that's the closest an American film has gotten to having that sort of like original Godzilla heat on it where it's like this is a giant monster movie that's actually about something that happened to us yep and it's so good Mm -hmm. yeah I love that movie great movie anyway so yeah he did that and it was huge then he proceeded on directly to his debut film Cabin in the Woods fantastic film which was shot the same year that Cloverfield came out and it it basically got tied up in uh, MGM's bankruptcy MGM slash United Artists fell apart. Oh, that's right. One of many, many times that that studio has fallen apart or run out of money and they couldn't distribute the movie. So it got waylaid for at least two years, like going on three. Because I remember when it came out, it was like this movie that everyone was like, this thing's been advertised for, for a long for, time. Forever. Yep. When the fuck is it actually coming yep. out? And. Chris Hemsworth essentially got cast as Thor off of Cabin in the Woods before anyone had ever seen it. Right. So it was one of these things where everyone's like, 
who is this, you know, meathead who we're being made to accept as Thor? Like, come on. Like, this guy had one scene in Star Trek, which he's, he's very, good. very he's good in. He's really but, like, good in. How is everyone so hot on this guy already? And it's because of Woods. Captain oh, he was Woods, great. which no one yep. had seen yet. Because it came out, like, around the same time as the Avengers, at which point he was fully installed as Thor. But, you know, everyone in Hollywood, uh, casting agencies and all that, they'd already seen him in, in that movie and knew that he was legit. Uh, after that, he continued to be like a big power player in Hollywood. He was one of the guys who was brought on to rewrite World War Z and, uh, you know, I think essentially rescued that movie in the eyes of the studio. Rescued, rescued um, is a strong yeah. word, but keep going. Yeah. yeah, it's a strong word. And I don't think the way that he rescued it. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah. I, I have very conflicted feelings. I, do I, too. I think that that movie might have been better before they fucked Oof. with it, but like less crowd pleasing. Yeah. But who knows? Oof. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, he also wrote the screenplay for The Martian, which was nominated for an Academy Award, which is wild to me, because I think that is a really bad adaptation of a pretty interesting book. But whatever. I have strong feelings. Let's not get into it. And then uh, shortly after that, he did his second film as writer-director, Bad Times at the El Royale, which uh, I would call aggressively okay. Yes, I I love the cast. I like the setting. I like the cool sort of like whodunit. Like it's been a while since we've seen like a whodunit kind of murder mystery. Sure. Yeah. And it just feels like it does so little yeah, with all of that. Exactly. You've got this great cast. It's Hemsworth. Know. It's like John Hamm. And I forget who else is in it. Is it uh, Dakota? Oh, you got Jeff Bridges. You got Cynthia Erivo. So, you got a bunch of Dakota people. Johnson maybe who's also in yes. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's great. They're also great. Really yeah. Great. And like, yeah, it's, it's a little bit underwritten. But keep going. I mean, for me, it's like... Uh, perfect example of like Hemsworth getting used wrong Mm. the way that he was in the mid 2010s where it's like oh yeah I helped bring this guy up he was great I'm gonna bring him back and give him such a movie star part he's gonna play Charles Manson as like a sexy shirtless movie star guy and he comes into the movie and the movie like rolls out the red carpet for him and he's just nothing and you're just like what is what is he he doesn't do much there good but it doesn't it's the character man It's the character and it's the fact that Chris Hemsworth just, everyone was like, you're going to just be a pure charisma, cool guy movie star. And that is not his energy. Mm -hmm. He's, he's goofy. He's light on his feet. He's, he's more like uh, someone out of like a screwball comedy from the thirties is like his energy, not this kind of character that ironically Goddard wrote in an attempt to be like, oh, let me give him another great role. You know, I, I think it was just a typical misuse of him. And then Goddard went on to something else, which I'm fascinated with. I really enjoy the Netflix Daredevil. Yeah. But I will say it is definitely an uneven show. It is. It's definitely a show that is very, very good in fits and starts. And I think that happened right from the start because he was attached to it as the showrunner. And then he quit after producing the first two episodes which, in my opinion, are probably the best two episodes that that show ever did. I think the pilot's great, great. and I think the second episode is an absolute barnstormer. It's fucking great. And he did those two, and then he separated himself from the show because he had the opportunity to direct The Sinister Six, which was the big villain Spider-Man movie that Amazing Spider-Man 2 was leading up to. And the irony here is that Netflix, and particularly Ike Perlmutter, who is this 
totally like horrifying dystopian like man who will not allow himself to be photographed and has like weird blood money with which he's producing shit and he's just supposed to be a total monster and a misogynist and a creep basically stepped in and tried to punish goddard for stepping away from the marvel show as much as possible and tied him up i think in like a lawsuit or some kind of weird just like heavy heavy contractual negotiations for that basically like goddard had a real tough time like extracting himself from that to try and get over to direct sinister six and by the time he did amazing spider-man 2 had bombed and it was delayed and then fully canceled when spider-man got sold back to marvel so he really kind of got fucked on that so he's been buried essentially yeah and you look at him and it's like since then and like especially like the past few years he's been attached to a bunch of stuff and none of it's gone wow and he really his credits kind of dry up in recent time i'm sure he's doing like uh script doctor work and i'm sure he's still got some juice but like you do not see projects produced with his name his on name it. does not come up yeah. anywhere wow yeah wow I mean, I I guess I get the, like, temptation of doing a Sinister Six movie, but, like, to me, uh, that Daredevil show was so strong when he was on it, and I wish we could have seen a whole season with him as showrunner because he only showran those first two episodes, and then the, like, whole thing was basically overhauled. And uh, Mm -hmm. Stephen S. Knight, who's a friend of his, who he was, like, comfortable handing it off to, but still, it's like... I don't know. I don't know. I just would have loved to see his show. What he would have done with it. What yeah. God would have. Yeah. What he would have yeah. done with it. Wow, man, that's crazy. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that we diverge on this one a little bit. I, I like that. I see. I see where you're coming from. For me, I think it was just I was really struck by how little I needed the island stuff to really be of consequence yes. for the episode to work like gangbusters, yeah. in my opinion. And I, I definitely, I went into it with a bit of skepticism. I went into it being like, all right, you know, when I first saw this episode, I was super high on it because I was a total dummy you know just totally like boy brain like oh Sawyer's such a badass and he's so fucking cool and this is all like noirish and he shoots a guy at the end of the episode and I was like hmm is that episode actually gonna like hold up when I go Mm -hmm. back to it or was I just uh lured in by these genre trappings and to watch it again I'm like no this episode fucking works man these performances are so good Holloway's incredible uh John Terry who plays Christian Shepard I I feel like we haven't shouted him out enough but I think this is his best scene ever I think so Mm -hmm. I think he's absolutely amazing in that bar yep and uh the filmmaking just has such juice to it. You can tell that like Lost returns to like sort of crime or neo-noir type flashbacks a lot. Mm -hmm. I think because they were like, well, an urban setting differentiates it so much from the island. And that's just a natural sort of story we can do in that that'll be diverting and exciting. It just executes that so well. Yeah. I was immediately like, oh yeah, this is the other kind of story they can do really well. Yep. Is like a very gritty intense crime-based drama they just had the perfect character to execute it too because i think you look at kate's flashback by comparison if you look at her second flashback which is another like that's from whatever the case may be sort of gritty crime story and that one doesn't progress it, her character not nearly as much no i think it's just a difference of 
a character who has a bunch of mysteries around them who we want to see unpacked. Whereas Kate is much more open, at least in the way that she presents herself on the island, where yeah. you feel like, well, you know, you're getting all of the sides of her, even if she's only showing one side at a time to a person, where Sawyer is like fully locked up. I just think it's interesting how that episode doesn't work nearly as well to expand the character. Well, the thing is, uh, this episode, Outlaws, actually has something to say about the character. I think it's interesting that they simply, they clearly illustrate how uh, led by the nose Sawyer can be and how he is still driven by like obtaining some type of revenge. That was something I guess like Goddard really wanted to emphasize and really wanted to, to make clear. Whereas I don't really think that there was much going on in whatever the case may be other than, oh, Kate is very good at manipulating or Kate is capable of like leading a, a ring of guys to, you know, perform a heist. Like there's nothing particularly outstanding about that episode that I remember. But it's supposed to unlock this like hidden trauma of hers revolving around this guy she right. loved. Who but they have no chemistry whatsoever. And to get this plane back. But like, no, but that guy doesn't appear in the episode. So the guy who, the guy who owned the plane uh -huh. who is represented by the plane in her mind that's what she's heisting this bank to get so that guy's so that not guy's even already in the episode dead. okay that's right. right yeah see it's all so muddled but it's also like you're moving toward a mystery that you didn't know was a mystery you didn't understand that as part of her motivation it doesn't come through in the current timeline it's just like they had not latched onto any one particular thing for her to be about. Mm -mm. And so it's very confused by comparison. Whereas with Sawyer, it feels like they know exactly what motivates him. They know how they can deconstruct him in the current timeline. They're telling the right story. To, I think they're telling the wrong story with Kate, which is they're telling the story where she's in some sort of physical peril. But the problem is, is that we already know she survives this because she's on the island. And right. so like we don't really care. They should be telling They should be telling a different the story romance exactly. with this guy exactly. that ends in his exactly. death that she's holding on to. That's what I want to see. And instead that's like an emotional context that we don't fully get. That we only barely have like explained to us. And that's why they need to do another Kate flashback this same season. It's like she gets 3 episodes and I feel like so little progress is made comparatively. Yeah, I, I totally with her. agree. Yeah. I just thought it was also very funny that they make the quip about the Red Sox never winning the World Series, and I'm pretty sure that the Red Sox won the World Series that, well, that same year. They won it a few months. Before a few this months before came yep. out, so it's actually a nice touch yeah, that is. they can it really hit on. Where they picked out something, and they're like, "Oh yeah, everyone on the island." is disconnected from the real world. They don't know that this has happened. And um, I think for all of us, it was like watching it, a great moment of, oh, yeah, things have like progressed for us, whereas they're caught in this stasis. Which brings me to another thing, which is that in the first season of Lost, probably the most popular theory for what was going on was that everyone on the island was in purgatory and they right. were being tested, which in retrospect, I think is just a reaction to sort of like Lindelof's preferred storytelling method that we talked about earlier, that he likes to sort of externalize psychological distress in a way where it's like physical threats sort of bounce off characters, but then like open them up emotionally. And this 
episode, though, I think did more probably than any other and to put people in that mindset that the island was purgatory. This episode just signals it over and over again that these characters are essentially in a hell of their own making and they are being tested by their past sins, you know? And it works really well. It's funny. Yeah. I think people brought that up and they were like, oh, I mean, I hope everyone's not dead and in purgatory. But I think also everyone was kind of accepting of that theory more than others, interestingly. It was the one that I thought made the most amount of sense. Yeah, Yeah. like, okay, we're all on this island. There's a ton of wildlife that doesn't make sense. There's a monster there's yeah there's a a crazy person out in the wood like all of these things feel i hate to use this word it could be union right like it could be emblematic of other sort of like more ethereal abstract ideas like there could have been a lot of abstraction there the show took a completely different turn i think within you know the subsequent seasons but like Mm -hmm. yeah 10 to 12 maybe 15 episodes in you definitely could have interpreted it that way things like the boar definitely stand out yeah the boar obviously a heavy symbol yes you know a symbol that's sitting atop the text Mm -hmm. yeah yeah which i don't necessarily mind if it's done well and it's really potent i mean it's not super strong the way that it's laid out here but you know i I, and i can see where that that might come off as like the weak sauce part of the episode i don't know i think holloway carries it i think i think lily carries it in a big way too i think she's so good in this episode having her split off with holloway you're really like oh man she really gets to like act with so much more energy she has someone who she can really bounce lines off i think you know her whole never have i ever performance is like maybe her best moment on the show so far i love how that game becomes so uncomfortable for both of them yeah and Mm -hmm. it's like and it's still flirtatious it's still sexy but it also they're both just like ugh, we both murdered people (laughs) right it starts off with like have you ever had sex and ends with have you ever murdered someone right right oh. yeah that's so funny it's like actually to think about it, i was like this is one of the least sexual games of never have i ever that anyone has ever played and still they immediately get away they from really do yeah they immediately get away from like flirting weird kinky shit you know they're not and they're getting into their turn into each at other all. yeah still exactly. into each other that's the other thing if anything oh, more after right? the game when yeah. he smolders and sips on that vodka at the end after he's like yeah actually i did kill someone and it's just like man <laughs> They fucking yet or what, man? I know, what are they right? Fucking, oh know? my gosh. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. Let's see. Overrated, underrated. What oh, do you think? Man. Just, yeah, what, what stands out to you? I'm going to say uh, overrated, killing a character off to move the plot forward. In this case, being Ethan. Because uh, mm-hmm. William Potter is great. And I think at the time we were like, well, there's an unlimited well of amazing others who are going to come out and be so creepy and transfixing. And uh, maybe we didn't realize how good we had it, you know? And maybe the same happened with Lindelof where he was like, damn, I really shouldn't have just like wasted his ass that quick. Yeah. And on the flip side, I would say uh, murdering a character to reveal a deeper truth about a character's self-loathing inner conflict because that's the thing in this episode you know Sawyer does pull the trigger on a guy and it's a great example of him killing a person and immediately realizing oh that's not who I am everyone who told me I was a killer I wasn't a killer 
is actually right. It's interesting how in that case, it's like we set this character up to die. And what they actually did was reveal that killing is senseless and violence is futile and that this character actually has a long way to go on their road to discovery yeah. when they thought they were just solving all of their problems by pulling one trigger. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to say I, I'm kind of with you on that one. Overrated is like the use of violence as a way to uh, resolve. Um, and so I'm going to go back to Homecoming, which is when Charlie decides yeah. to, you know, game genie the entire island by shooting <laughs> Ethan. It, 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 it doesn't solve anything, like you said before. And I think it it cheapens opportunities to write growth into some of these characters um because from what like you like you said like they sort of give charlie a pat on the head and there's no further work for him to do and this is a character who desperately needs somewhere exactly Exactly. and yet they deny him that immediately too by yeah yeah. um and then underrated oof i mean i think you and i are kind of on the same kind of on the same wavelength with this one which is underrated i think is the ability to turn on its head using masculinity or using violence as a way to expose someone as not what you think that they are so perhaps Mm -hmm. we even have the exact same the exact same thoughts on this which is yeah i think it's underrated to use violence as um, a way to expose a person's weakness and a person's vulnerability which is exactly what they do with sawyer and I think that moment is brilliant just when he how um, blown away by the fact that he has been played like when that when that hits him, man, like that's such a great moment. And so, yeah, I, I think that, that those would be my two. Yeah, it really exposes the the futility of violence in that case. It's ironic because if he walked up and then didn't shoot the guy, it actually would have prevented his growth as a character. Yeah. Which would be such a TV thing to do. It would. To have the character like, oh, well, we're going to keep him kind of sympathetic by having him not pull the trigger on this guy. And that typical TV moment of, oh, he points a gun at a guy and then they have an exchange and then he doesn't do it. And that's the irony is that here he needed to make the mistake to get to that next level. Not just me being bloodthirsty, which you um, know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> is a common thing with me mm-hmm. oh, totally. in media. I'm like, no, nah, fucking kill these characters. Let's see if that's interesting. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. You can always make new ones. Come exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. Underrated also, Scott Steve. That's all I got to say. R.I.P. Scott, Scott Steve. Steve, man. Yeah. And, and how is Steve Scott doing without his other half? Is he like one of those identical twins who has survived the death of his sibling and is now like adrift in the world what's going on with him so i think the entire time anytime that we've seen uh these sort of ethereal dream sequences where Locke is like got you know black and white or he's got you know a whited out eye or like you know whenever yeah. there's that dichotomy there yeah great image mm-hmm. i think it's just really them pointing to scott steve steve scott <laughs> And the dichotomy and the separation between these two characters that we've known. Oh, man. That we've grown to love. And I think that's really what this, uh, what the writers are trying to get to. We are going full-on English major in this episode. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oof. Any final thoughts on these two episodes? <laughs> no, I think we've done enough uh, analysis. We've torn this of apart. This mutilated it i think we've done enough of this uh i read 10 pages of this dh lawrence novel now let me pull out some real fancy shit to make this essay work you know what that's my final grade sons and lovers (laughs) is a great one that's all i gotta say get out of here sons and lovers is great the 10 pages i read was excellent let me tell you all right 
Shall we name some episodes? I think it's about time. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. All right, here we go. All right, it's time for Name That Episode. Here we go. This season four episode of Mad Men was directed by John Slattery, in which Pete Campbell finds out from his father-in-law that Trudy is pregnant. Freddie Rumson returns to Sterling Cooper after a year-long absence. And Secretary Allison is heartbroken over Don Draper's ridiculously cold behavior. Mm. I love Freddie Rumson. I know, right? So this isn't the suitcase. No. Definitely not. No. And, okay, uh, give me a little, a little hint about this okay. title. This is two words. It's episode four. And, yeah, two words. Uh, I'm sorry, but the first word is the. I'm, I know that's not doing much for oh, you. Oh, okay, so it's just it's, one yeah, word. It's really just one word. So it's, because it's not, it's not the chrysanthemum and the sword. No, it's the episode right before it. Shit. Um, hmm. Hmm. Any hint about what the word, like uh, just like just like what the word relates to? Um, or... It relates to. Um, I would say this is the focus on Allison and her. Uh, yeah, Alice, Allison and Don. It's about gotcha. that dynamic. God, season four is so good. Dude. Yeah, I think it's my favorite season. Yeah, and it's not the suitcase. Nope. Shit. And the the first episode of the season is called Public Relations. Yes, it is. I mm-hmm. And so this is episode four. Yes. Is this the rejected? Boom! Oh, good for you, yes. man. Yeah. Oh, pull that you know, out, you know, dude. Because I, I was just thinking today about how I need to watch more uh, Don Hertzfeld shorts. Oh. <laughs> and you know that one he did rejected. Yeah. Oh, it's such a classic. <laughs> yeah. I want to watch the the World of Tomorrow one. Oh, I've only boy. seen the first part. Uh. But yeah, I just had Hertzfeld on the brain. Okay. And I was like, oh yes. All right. Rejected. Here we go. On to number two. In this season three episode of Battlestar Galactica, Gaius Baltar mm-hmm. is interrogated aboard the Galactica. The love tangle mm. between Apollo, Starbuck, Anders, and Dewalla unfolds, and Chief Tyrrell is introduced. That's a love square. My I, you're right. You're right. I didn't want to say love. That's a love well, rhombus. Right. Bro. It is. I didn't want to say love triangle because I was like, that's too many. But I can't, I don't know my shapes, so I, I just go with love <laughs> triangle. Uh, so yeah, so Chief Tyrrell is introduced <laughs> to up with your polygons. All right, he's uh, introduced to the lounge in uh, on the Galactica called Joe's Bar. Oh yeah, yeah. And so this is when yeah, Baltar is getting tortured mm-hmm. before his trial mm-hmm. at the end of season three. Yes, right? I believe so. Mm, yeah, the one that comes to mind is just the boxing episode. Oh, that's a that's classic. Called, like, isn't it called Unfinished Business? Um, yes, it is. It's a classic oh, it's episode. A good fucking yep. episode. Ah, oh, man. Season three was a little uneven, but like, God, the good shit was in season three was high just quality. Amazing. The whole new Caprica arc. So too, good. Dude. Fuck. Ah, oh, yeah. So good. Hmm. A little hint about the episode title. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. I think it's seven words. Seven words? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Oh my god! And it's also directed sentence. by yeah. It's also directed by. Uh, hold on, let me make sure. Is it almost? Yep. Did he direct I this one? He, he yes. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What a king! Guy is. Uh, <laughs> I just always really think is. of this interview. It's so funny. It's Katie Sackoff saying it too. So she's like impersonating him, which is even more <laughs> hilarious and charming. Yeah. But she's like. Yeah, we did this. Uh, he was directing uh, the plan, mm-hmm. I think, and she's like, "Yeah." And so we didn't have any rating restrictions, and so there's like this shower scene, and almost is there behind the camera, and he's just like, "Zoom in on that cock! Zoom in on that cock!" 
just like adamant, like get that gritty nudity in there. It's so unexpected. And just hearing her relate this is so funny. I just don't see him behaving like that ever. So that is a revelation. Oh no, I totally oh you do. Know. Okay, totally. I, no, I mean he's just such a like. He's, he's the best. <laughs> he seems like somebody who's so maximalist. True. You know? Like, have you ever seen his movie American Me? No, but I feel... The movie is full of a bunch of the most, like, heinous prison violence ever committed to film. Okay, that's fair. It's so extreme. I, I don't see him behaving that way, but I could see him making, like, a Verhoeven-esque yes. film. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has a bit of that energy. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so, it's seven, seven words. words. What, what is it relating to? You know, it's kind of Hakuna Matata. Really? Hmm. That's got to be ironic, since it's a Ronald D. I Moore mean, show. sure, but, like, this is, yeah, <laughs> this is what I'm saying. So tell me, give me, give me the summary of the episode. Yeah, uh, so, in this episode, uh, Gaius Baltar is interrogated aboard the Galactica, the love rectangle between Apollo, Starbuck, Anders, and Duwala continues to progress and unfolds, and Chief Tyrrell is introduced to the lounge, which is called Joe's Bar. Oh, the bar! Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I was thinking about, because it's like, it's not unfinished business, Mm -mm. but it's taking a break from all your worries. It's the fucking cheer song. Yep, it is. There you go. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. On to the next. Let's see. Okay, here we go. In this season three episode of The Office, I think it's season three. Yes, the season three episode of The Office, uh, the Dunder Mifflin staff, they play games outside. They learn more about one another. Jim reveals that he's dating Katie Moore, played by Amy Adams. And Michael decides to mentor Ryan Howard. What about her, Mm -hmm. dude? Yeah. Holy shit. Yep. Ah, Speaking of Amy Adams, since we brought her up, I've been thinking about this this whole episode, how... The thing that the Ethan murder by Charlie and then Claire's immediate just letting him off the hook and also rewarding him for it reminds me of the most is when Amy Adams rushes in to give Henry Cavill a hug after he murders Zod in Man of Steel, which is like one of the grossest examples I can think of, Mm -hmm. of just like, oh, we took this beloved character and completely fucked with the entire idea of them by having them kill someone. And then we're immediately like, no, no, it's okay. You get hugs for doing that. Good job. Good job. You know, (laughs) just immediate emotional security blanket wrapped around this character when we should be interrogating the fact that they just killed somebody. Right. He's a superhuman god who just murdered someone. (laughs) And it's like, no, no, no. You get a a hug hug and a happy meal. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah. So, um,. In this episode, the like the outdoor activities they do, do they get kind of like Lord of the Flies ish? Um, Is that kind of what happens in this episode? I don't think so. No, they're more just uh, yeah. get to know you type games. Okay, it's not. Is it called like um, trust exercises or something like no. that? Mm-mm. No. Hmm. Is the like the firewalk in this episode? The firewalk. They end up doing a firewalk. No, no, no. I think that's later on in the season. Damn it. I don't know it. I can't. I can't remember. I'm gonna double check to make sure that I am in the right season, just to make sure. It sounds like season it's, three. It might be, but it might be season two. Movies. I might have given you the wrong I season. I don't think so. Just... Was Amy Adams in season two? I apologize. It's a Man. season two episode, not season three. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fuck. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because I feel like they firewall. They do in, in season, season three. three. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. So yeah. this is season two. I apologize. I don't know why I wrote down season oh, three. Oh shit. Uh, nah, Still I don't, don't have it. 
All right, yeah. So this is called the fire. Wait, it's called the fire, mm-hmm. but it isn't the fire. No, it's not. Oh, yeah, this is the it. episode where oh, I'm so frustrated. <laughs> I just don't even know what happened. This is the one. episode where uh, there's. I'm gonna I'm put this on your hand. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Don't even try that mm-hmm. one. Don't even try that one. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. This is the one Full where shut that uh, down Ryan. Quick. I'll get one episode to <laughs> exactly. guess each time from here on out. He's like, oh, you're getting rationed now. <laughs> now this is the episode where Ryan starts the fire by uh, microwaving something. Yeah, uh, I had to leave that yeah, part out because yeah, otherwise yeah. I'd be giving it away completely. <laughs> giving it? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta know your episodes, man. Uh-huh. I know. Well, you did two out of three. Nice. Any other thoughts? Yeah, man. Any other thoughts? No, no. I mean, for me, Outlaws is such a highlight, and I think it feels like post-Lindelof sort of like taking out his dirty laundry with Homecoming, according to him, but to us just like resolving a storyline in a mm-hmm. at least semi-satisfying way. Even if we, you know, broke down the semiotics of it and we're like, hmm, a lot of this actually points to uh, to some potential issues that the show is having, you know? That being said, I, I do feel like this is part of a general upswing, right. both of these episodes. I feel like season one is kind of coalescing and getting some mojo here yeah i don't know we'll see we'll see i think the next two episodes are really really strong i think in general this is part of a course correct for the yeah i'm excited to see that we're back on track we are no longer just sort of like stalling we're no longer just kind of like churning our wheels we're moving forward with the story with the characters with the characters which yeah. is the most important thing I, exactly on the give us yeah sure. give us something to actually work towards and, and be excited about and so yeah i'm glad that that's kind of where this where this feels like it's headed yep it's a good stuff yeah yeah man cool well, uh, in that case, uh, we'll see you guys next week for uh, those episodes in translation and numbers. Two really, really strong ones. I can't wait to break those down. And uh, until then, you can send us questions at goatseasonpod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on the Instagram at goatseasonpod. I also want to thank Janice O'Leary for our artwork, Josh Sullivan for our intro music, and Battlequake for our outro. And we will see you then. Peace. Peace. Peace.